0: Good morning, again. Um, I'm sad we're leaving Haggai. We're finishing Haggai. Who knew, right? Two chapters in a place you can't even find in your Bible, and yet so much glory, right? A new beginning, help in disappointment. Man, so I'm just talking right now so you can actually find it. Um, No, actually, the the verses we're going to be looking at, if you don't have a Bible um, or a phone with the scriptures, you can also look in your bulletin. The scripture, the the passage of the Bible we're looking at is is right there. There's also a place there to take notes, uh, so you can do that as well. Um, We're finishing this series today, dealing with disappointment. And we just want to say, just to put it out on the table so that all of us can just sort of opt in and go, yeah, all right, this is for me, um, that life is fraught with disappointment, isn't it? Sometimes it's huge, earth-shattering kinds of things. Sometimes it's just that, that, like, that low, gnawing frustration, you know, that just makes you think, like, gosh, is this ever going to end? Do I have to deal with this for the rest of my life, right? And so I, I was actually meeting with someone this week who was incredibly disappointed with God, and he just came out with the big guns, and he says, why do people do what's right and follow God, and yet they suffer? Like, why doesn't God help them? Why would God make their lives so hard, especially if they're trying to follow him? I think this is a question that we all ask ourselves. Um, It's how we feel when bad things happen to us, or it's how we're tempted to feel when bad things happen to us. Um, And so if you come to the Bible with these questions, you want to know, God, what's the deal? What does God have to say for himself? And in this series on disappointment, let me just talk about what we've seen so far um, these are just highlights from the last three messages that you can go back and listen to in their entirety. So I'm just going to read over this um, because, again, you can go listen to it. Number one, we've seen that it's not always life going well that's beautiful, but it's our faithfulness in the midst of disappointment that is beautiful. That's a big deal. Uh, two, we can expect God to do greater things in our lives. There is more to come. And then three, God, we saw this last week, God is honest about our past and hopeful about our present and future. So this is what we've seen so far. And in our passage today, God ends this book by speaking directly uh, about leadership. Okay? And actually, he speaks a word directly to leadership. Uh, it's, it's the governor of Israel who was named Zerubbabel. Okay? It's kind of a fun name once you get it down, Zerubbabel. It kind of makes you feel good when you say it, kind of bouncing along, Zerubbabel. blah, 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 blah. It is fun if you try it at home. Don't do it in front of other people because they'll think you're silly, stupid. Um, there you go. But so God speaks this word to Zerubbabel, but Haggai wrote this down so that we could actually read it too and so that we could have hope in the midst of our disappointment. So whatever disappointment you have felt or feeling, this passage going to the governor actually is going to speak to us today, and this is what we're going to see. Here's kind of the bottom line. Our ultimate hope in disappointment rests with the king. That's what this passage is going to teach us. Now, this might seem odd for us as 21st century American people. We have a president over our nation, not a king. But we're going to see first how this message spoke to Israel back then during the day. And then we'll talk about how it applies to us. And so, again, it's in your bulletin. It's also going to be up here on the screen. This is Haggai 2, verses 20 to 23. Friends, listen, this is God's word. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Got into that, actually. So I want to just really quickly break down that verses 20 to 22 involve what God is about to do with all of the nations surrounding Israel. Okay, Israel was in the middle of the Middle East, and they were surrounded by these other nations. Most of them were not friendly to Israel. And God's saying, I'm about to shake them, and it talks about what he's going to do. He's going to bring judgment and destroy these other nations. And then verse 23 describes what God is going to do with Zerubbabel. And the key to understanding the impact and the significance of God's message to Zerubbabel is the image, the image of the signet ring. Right? Did you see that as we were reading it? In verse 23 there, he says, I will make you like a signet ring. What does that mean? Right? If you don't know what that means, if you're not familiar with the imagery back in the day, you'd be like, well, I don't really get this. It sounds important, though. And so that's kind of how I felt when I read this. I'm like, I got to look this up. So I did some study. Let me share with you some things. This is a signet ring. Okay, it's a ring that has a carved top. Um, and signet rings back in the ancient world were a combination of a driver's license, a social security card, and an autograph all in one. Okay? It was carved specially as w- with an identifying mark. And so what would happen was they would... They would um, they would melt wax, called sealing wax, onto the bottom of a contract or onto a letter that you were trying to seal. Sealing um, wax. I ever actually never knew that it was sealing like this. I always thought it was like sealing wax when I sang Puff the Magic Dragon. Anybody else? And it came to me like 30 years later. I had this awakening like, no way! Sealing wax. I never knew what sealing wax was. But you know when you have that moment where you actually get the lyrics to the song and so that happened to me. So that's sealing wax right there. You'd melt the wax and then you would plant your seal in the midst of the wax and it was like your autograph. It was your signature. Um, And so contracts were signed with a seal. Letters, like this one, you'd fold the letter over and you would melt wax across the fold and then you'd stamp that in. It would actually hold it like some glue, but also that would say that you personally have sealed this. Therefore, because you, you're carrying this ring on your finger, it's on your person, and so you seal it, and so the person who gets it, if that seal's not broken, knows that you were the last person to have this open. And so these seals were guarantees. These seals represented the owner and the authority of the owner, and they guaranteed the contents of the letter, for instance, was authored by the bearer of the signet ring. It guaranteed that the contract terms would be fulfilled, that the that the bearer of that signet ring was giving his or her word. Okay, and so just these are three seals that are actually the seals of King Ahaz from like the 750 BC time frame. He was a king of Judah. Um, it's also King Hezekiah and King Manasseh. And so these have been uncovered in archaeological digs. And so these are kings of Israel who actually had, and we actually found things that had their seal on them. So that's pretty cool. Now, this is a big deal, okay? This is a big deal, especially in Israel, because in the history of God's relationship with Israel, God joined the image of the signet ring to the office of the king. Okay? So what he says here, when he says, O Zerubbabel, my servant, I will make you like a signet ring. There's something specific that God is calling to mind from the history of his relationship with Israel. The king was supposed to be a guarantee of God's promise and his blessing. Okay, The presence of the king was supposed to guarantee for the people that God was with them and that God was going to bless them. And the king was a guarantee if the king followed God. Okay, let me just show you this. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, it says this, if both you, that's the people, and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And so the king's office, the office of the king was designed to lead the nation in following God. The king was supposed to do things and say things and enact laws and and enforce laws that would keep the nation of Israel close to God, encouraged to walk with God, encouraged to know God. And so that's important, and 70 or 80 years before Zerubbabel, Okay, so about 80 years before Zerubbabel, before God said this to Zerubbabel, God said something else to another king. um, And this was a king who actually led God's people into the destruction of their nation. Okay, so there was a king who was evil, he was rotten, he was bad, and he actually led the entire nation into judgment from God. And this is what it says about that king in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. So look at this. This is so you'll see the connection here. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And so what do we see here? In this verse, you can see it, right? That Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, is a signet ring on God's hand. The king is the signet ring. And God is saying, because you are so bad, because you've perverted justice, because you have ignored the fatherless and the poor, because you have led the whole nation away from me and to worship other gods, I am going to rip you off as a signet ring, and I'm going to throw you away. And so God did this. God did this. He pulled uh, Coniah and the whole nation um, and tossed them aside. He threw them into Babylon, where they were captured and led off into exile, and they were in slavery for seventy years. The line of kings at that point was broken when Israel was judged by God and sent into captivity. But, but, do you see now what God is saying here in Haggai? Do you see what He's saying in verse twenty-three? God is saying that now the line of kings has been remade. He's saying the line of kings has been remade. In verse 23, God says that Zerubbabel and his family line will once again be a signet ring. That God is going to renew his covenant with Zerubbabel and his family line. That once again, Zerubbabel if he follows God, will guarantee God's presence and his promise to bless his people. And so what we see here from these verses is that the fate of the people in the midst of their disappointment was bound up in the king. It was bound up in the king. Now, this promise is very clear, isn't it? God just promises it. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. God's offer, this promise is free. Zerubbabel didn't do anything to deserve to get this promise. The people of Israel didn't do anything to deserve to get this promise. In fact, the whole book of Haggai sort of comes to Israel at a time when they literally haven't done anything. They've actually done the worst things. Instead of being ready and trying to prepare to receive God's blessing by obeying him, they've been disobeying him. They've been dishonoring him. They've been disregarding him in their lives. They're living as though what God thinks doesn't matter. And yet God's blessings come. God's blessings come. And his blessings are free in that we don't have to do anything to deserve them. But even though his blessings are free, this is kind of the mystery of the gospel here, the blessings of God are free, and yet they cost you everything. Okay, the blessings of God are free, and yet they cost you everything because God calls us into a relationship with Him where He is God. Right? If you just develop a relationship with a friend or with a colleague at work, right, and your peers, then a relationship looks like a friendship where there's give and take, where there's sharing back and forth, where sometimes you get your way, sometimes they get their way. God is not a peer of ours. God's blessings come to us, and they all actually come with an invitation. And the invitation is, God says, come and know me. Come and live with me. Come and have a relationship with me. And if we say yes to that, we're saying yes to God and what is appropriate in a relationship between a finite human being and an infinite and all-powerful God, and even more so than his power but even more so with limited intellectual human beings and an infinitely knowledgeable and wise God. Who is always going to be right? Man, a relationship with God means that if he is God, then we live our lives as though he is more important than anything Or anyone else. That's how it works. And so a nation, like the nation of Israel, can't be devoted to God if its leadership isn't. Okay? And we experience this, don't we? Um, We have leadership that's not all the way at the top all the time, but we have layers of leadership over us. Sometimes in our family, sometimes at school with teachers and the administration, um, sometimes at work. And then ultimately, with politics, we have leaders that are over us. And no matter what we do, no matter how devoted we might be to God, there are times when it feels like we sort of get swept up in what our leaders want to do. Right? We get swept up in the direction of where our leaders are going. And so now, if God has promised to bless us, if we follow him, which he has, then if we are personally following him, he will bless us in the midst of whatever stuff is going on, decisions that get made above us. Um, So that's that's good news. But a nation's direction is determined by the faithfulness of its leaders. I mean, especially back then, because back then the king's power was unchecked. Uh, There were no checks and balances. It was the king, and that's about it. Um, Today, we have a different kind of government, right? But today, the direction of our nation is determined by the president, by the Supreme Court justices that he appoints, by the Senate, by the Congress, by judges all over the country, by mayors, city council people. And when our leaders make decisions that follow God, they draw the nation or a community closer to him. When they make decisions that don't follow God, they lead the nation or a community farther away from him. And so God's promise to Zerubbabel here is incredibly strong, Um, but it calls Zerubbabel to follow God, to have a relationship with him, and to be a king who leads Israel in righteousness, And so this promise to Zerubbabel comes with this invitation because Israel needed a king to lead them in the way they should go. They needed someone at the top, setting the tone, setting the example. And we still need this kind of leadership. We still need it today. We need a leader who can save us from the selfishness that's inherent in the policies of the Republican Party. We need leadership that can save us from the inherent enabling laziness on the democratic side of the aisle. We need leadership that can save us from the hunger for power that exists on both sides of the aisle. We need these things. Zerubbabel was offered to be a guarantee to the nation but the promise of God came with a condition, right? The promises of God are only good if you accept him and live in a relationship with him. And so friends, especially those of you who aren't following Jesus, um, if we don't turn to him, then we will be swept up in the flood of God's judgment against the brokenness of the world. But his offer today is that if you follow him, he makes broken things new. So Israel's future is bound up in Zerubbabel and how he responds to God's call. And if you could read the rest of the story, we find out that Zerubbabel actually fails. Um, he doesn't lead the nation into righteousness. Seventy years after Zerubbabel, um, Ezra and Nehemiah come. Okay, and you can read about them. They have books named after them. And when they show up, they find that Israel is not following God. Israel's worshiping other gods. They're marrying people who pull them away from God. Justice has been perverted in the nation of Israel. And so the nation never rises. Israel never gets out of the hole that it dug for itself. But here's the good news. The good news is that God always keeps his promises. And God kept his eye on on Zerubbabel. And we actually see what God does from this point on in Matthew chapter one. He sees that Zerubbabel fathered Abiod, who fathered Eliakim, who fathered Azor, who followed Zadok, who fathered Achim, who fathered Eliad, who fathered Eliezer, who followed Mithon, who followed Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Friends, human kings could not do this. And so what we couldn't do, God himself has done. By sending his own son to reign as a human being. He made him just like us. And Jesus reigned as king. That's what the word Christ means. It means God's anointed king. And so Jesus reigned in life and in death. He overcame and conquered sin, and he brought forgiveness so that in our disappointment, we could know that God will never let you go. And so our ultimate hope in disappointment rests with the king. It rests with our king, Jesus. Um, When we turn from our sin, we have this assurance that the King is on our side and the King for us has died. We have that assurance. That's a voice. That's something you can remind yourself of. That's something that you have friends that you need to remind them of. This. Man, the King is on our side. The King for us has died. And by his resurrection, Jesus becomes for us a signet ring. Jesus is a guarantee that he is king and he will be king forever because he has passed through death and he reigns, he died, and he rose to save us. And so, yes, Jesus asks us for full devotion. Jesus says, I don't want any competitors. You need to put me first in your life, in every area of your life. You need to live every part of your life as though what I think is, is most important, right? There's a call to full devotion. Jesus says, metaphorically, you know, leave everything that you have and come follow me. But what that looks like in our lives is actually taking everything that we have and honoring him with it. So it doesn't mean giving everything, but it means using everything that we have to honor him. And when, now, when our king asks us for full devotion... Now it's Jesus asking, right? It's Jesus who says, look, I know it's hard, but it's not harder than what I did for you. And I'm giving you my strength. Jesus says, I know the way is dark, but it's not as dark as the road I walked. And I walked it for you. Jesus said, I know the inherent loneliness that can characterize the path that I ask you to live on. There are people around you who won't understand you. There are people around you who will mock you. There are people around you who will literally just scoff at you and treat you like you're an idiot. And I want you to know that the same thing happened to me. I did it for you. Not so that you could feel ashamed that I did it for you, but so that you would know that I understand what it's like and I'm with you. And if I overcame it, and I give you my strength, if I give you my life, if I give you my devotion, you can do it as you follow me. When you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you, you will experience a form of resurrection within. Broken things in your life will begin to be made new, and you'll see areas of your life beginning to, to heal. And it often starts in the heart, right? Just the knowledge that you're forgiven. The assurance that the one who matters most, think about that. Like think about the people who matter to you and whose opinion you care about. How important are they compared to God? I mean, I know it's hard, right? Cuz I live too and there's people that I really want their approval, I need their respect. I want I mean, I get it. I really do. But when I stop back I sit back and I think, okay, compared to God, like, oh, dang, wait, hold on. (laughs) Um, No matter what else is going on in your world, no matter how disappointed you are, Jesus, who is God, gave his life for you. And so it starts in our hearts, but it goes from our hearts to our hands and our feet. Because as you experience the wonder of this kind of acceptance, As you experience the joy of knowing that the God above hears you, listens to you, cares about everything that's going on in your life, wants to be with you in all the areas of your life, you begin to see your life change. Things begin to change. God begins to put the pieces back together. God shows you and he gives you this new strength. Um, It's a strength that makes you strong enough in your relationships to serve. To care about people in your family, to care about people at work, to care about neighbors and friends. So that you're not out trying to get other people to understand all the problems that you have. But Jesus has met your deepest need and how you desperately want to help others with the needs that they have. That's what this power does. It lets you open up and actually form community with other Christians because you don't have to hide anymore. Because Jesus has forgiven you. So what could someone else say or do to you? Good news story. I talked to two different people this week who have had awful experiences feeling judged by the church. And it was kind of exciting because I got to ask them, well, in your experience with our church, have you felt that way? And the answer was no. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, there's a spirit in our church of acceptance. There's a spirit in our church that doesn't that wants people to know that they aren't going to be judged, right? For those of you who are new here, I mean, this is a safe place. Uh, we are broken people who are seeking Jesus to put the pieces back together. And we know, um, I mean, I don't know if everybody would say this, but I would say, like, whatever you've done, like, I'll go toe-to-toe with you, and I think what I've done is worse, Um <laughs> So no judgment here. So what does it mean to have Jesus as your king? Well, it means to be under his loving authority. Under his loving authority. And I understand that takes trust. It takes trust. But remember that the one who calls you to trust is the one who came. And Jesus wants to do something so glorious and so wonderful in your life. That you'd be in a place where you would actually show in your life that Jesus is reigning. That people could look at your life and see that Jesus is king. Not because everything in your life is working out well for you. Although sometimes it does happen, right? There's times you follow Jesus and man, good stuff happens because God is a good father who's a good king. But Jesus' is kingship in your life is most gloriously displayed when things go wrong and you continue to love him and other people. It's when your life is falling apart. It's when you're in despair. It's when you're frustrated. It's when you're angry. It's when you are complaining against you know, to God and you continue to hold on to him. Someone I was talking to you said, my grandmother has been following God and her car just got stolen. She stopped at a, like a, at, a, at a liquor store to pick something up, just to buy something really quick. Somebody came, got in her car, and, and took off with it. It's like, why would God do that? And I said, man, that's awful. Um, the answers that the Bible would give to that question don't remove the fact that that is really awful. You feel violated. You feel, we had a laptop stolen from our office just this week. Somebody walked in, actually interacted with one of us, and then ripped off a laptop. You feel violated, right? God, this is a church. Why would you do this? And I asked this guy, I said, well, is she still holding on to her faith in God? He said, yeah. I said, well, how much stronger does her faith look like now? I mean, when everything's going well, who wouldn't be thankful? Who wouldn't be grateful? But it's specifically when life falls apart and you hold on and you continue to worship, you continue to praise, you commit, God, I'm going to be the signet ring. I'm going to keep following you. That's when you demonstrate the real strength of your faith. It's when life falls apart that you show that his power in you is stronger than the power of of evil. It's stronger than the temptation to be bitter. Do you see that? I mean, if you can understand that, then finally there's a purpose when life falls apart. Finally, there's something you can do about it. You can worship. You can worship and be an example of the incredible power of God that's stronger than what's wrong. When you do that, you show in your life that there's something greater to live for. You don't need things to work out for you so that you can have a good life, because knowing Jesus is the good life. Jesus says when you know him, when you are close to him, that is eternal life. You begin to live when Jesus is enough and he he satisfies you in the midst of the brokenness. When you live that way, you actually begin to live the way you will live forever. When you choose to do that, heaven opens up and you are filled with eternal life. And people would go, man, what the heck? Like one of the folks upstairs, you know, because the word got out that our laptop got stolen um, and at one point, I was at the sink washing a dish or something, and one of the other ladies came over and she goes, Man, I'm really sorry. And I was able to say, You know what? Um, what happened is it sucks. We feel violated. We feel unprotected in some ways. But it's okay because it's just money and God provides. She goes, Wow, huh? That's cool. <laughs> Seed planted. So Jesus gives us the strength to do this, okay? He gives you the strength to do this. If you're a Christian, you have this strength right now, okay? You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do it. You have this strength right now. And how do you know? Well, you won't know until you actually do it, okay? You won't know that you have this strength until you actually face the situation that you're in and you choose to worship. Um, You won't feel this strength until you worship. And so stepping out to honor God, stepping out to follow God in the middle of your disappointment, that is an act of faith. And when you step out to do it, then you will see Jesus is there already waiting for you. And he will give you all the strength that you need. And that's how it works. This is what Jesus wants to do. Try it this week. Try it today. Um, When we come to the Lord's table in just a few minutes, when we sing our final song, even right now, take that thing that is frustrating you. Take that thing that's the source of your disappointment and say, God, this sucks. I hate this. I wish it wasn't this way. But I'm going to worship you anyways. I know you are good. I know you have a purpose for me in this and I know you can give me the strength to worship you in the middle of this. Every time you do that, your faith grows, the strength of Jesus in you grows. And when we do that, something amazing happens. Our king makes us reign with him. king makes us reign with him. This is what the Bible teaches. Um, And and this is, it's got some incredibly wonderful um, sort of picturesque images. In Revelation chapter 20, this place at the end of the Bible, it says that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat on his throne, then all of his people are reigning with him. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says you were dead in your sins, spiritually dead. And Jesus makes you alive. You are made alive together. You're brought back from the dead. And then you are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. You get to sit on the throne with the King. He welcomes you onto his throne and you reign with him. We're going to talk more specifically about how this works in our new series that starts next week on the resurrection fitting for Easter, so come back, learn more. We're going to dive deep into it. Um, But I want to tell you, like, this is what Jesus wants to do. He wants us to reign with him. And this is happening. This is happening in our church. This is happening on the campus at Point Loma Nazarene University. Um, And there are people who haven't been walking with Jesus, And there are some people who are walking with Jesus, and the same thing is describing them. Sin reigns over them. Depression reigns over them. The need for approval reigns over them. Family brokenness reigns over them. And people are turning to Jesus. And he is, this is the glory. Uh, This is so wonderful. Um, Now, in the midst of the brokenness of their lives, in the midst of their disappointment, they are reigning. They're not beat down by their circumstances. They're not controlled by the stuff that they, that that's been done to them. But they are reigning with Jesus. They are sitting on the throne of Jesus, reigning in their lives, not conquered by the bad things that are going on, not conquered by their disappointment, but they are trusting in God. They are feeling his strength, and they are living radically new lives. This is Jesus This is Jesus, and you can see it in them. Now, these people grieve over their brokenness. These people lament and complain to God in the midst that God would make things different. But in the midst of the brokenness, they reign with him, and they're showing that God's power in them is more powerful than their circumstances. And God's love is greater because that's the kind of God that he is. Friends, he's offering all of that to us today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming near to us in your word.